0: All right. Good morning. good morning. How are you guys doing? Excellent. How are you? All right. Good. I'm also well. You look well. People are going to their seats. Love it. All right. We are continuing our series, uh, life of, The Life of Paul, and this is now part seven. So what have we covered so far to get to the point in the story where we are? And so I want to start by reviewing that. What have we done to get to where we are so far? So this is the story um, of the life of Paul up to the point that we are now at. So once there lived a man named Saul. That man later on in his life went by the name Paul. But at this point early in his life, he went by the name Saul. And Saul was brought up in Judaism. He was trained as a Pharisee, which is a Jewish religious leader. He was familiar with the Old Testament law, and he was very devoted to it. In fact, um, he was indignant toward people who had a different point of view than he did about it, particularly about the Messiah. The Old Testament prophesied that a Messiah would come and save God's people, and there was a a group of people at the time um, who believed, this is in the first century um, in the Roman Empire, there was a group of people at the time who believed that the Messiah had come, that it was Jesus. Jesus was the Messiah who came and that he saved his people from their sins, but did not immediately save them from Rome, and that idea seemed crazy to Saul. And he hated these people. These people were Christians, although they didn't have that name at the time because the name had not been invented. But he hated these people and he persecuted them. And then in the middle of persecuting them, there was a time where Jesus appeared to him and spoke to him. And that was enough to get him to switch teams. And he became one of the people that he was trying to destroy. So he went throughout this area, um, area called Arabia for a while, um, probably preaching about Jesus. He ends up at one point about at the three-year mark in being a follower of Jesus, I think in Jerusalem, and he's preaching about Jesus, and he almost gets killed for it. So he escapes to this town called Tarsus, Tarsus was his place of birth and probably his hometown, like where he had spent some of his early years. And so now he's back there, living there as an adult for a period of time that we don't know for sure how long it was. But if you were here, you might remember, I estimated, I think probably about 10 years, he lived back in his hometown. We don't know what he did during those years, probably worked a job, probably taught people about Jesus, maybe started a church or two. Meanwhile, there were other Jewish Christians and um, that was just sort of like the, all the Christians at this point. If, for those of you that have been around, you remember this, right? All of the, the earliest Christians were all Jewish Christians. Like Jesus is Jewish. Jesus is there as the, as the Savior um, for Israel. And so all of the earliest Christians were all Jewish people. But then, because of the persecution that happened, they spread to other cities and other nations and other places and started telling, at first, other Jewish people that the Messiah had come, Jesus, but then eventually started telling Gentiles that the Messiah had come. A Messiah that they didn't even believe was coming, right? Because they didn't believe the same things religiously as Jewish people. And yet they started telling the Gentiles, there is this one who has come and he is, you know, he is the Savior and he is Lord and, and they, they believe in him and he died on the cross for our sins. And however all the stuff they explained to the stuff, there ended up being not just Jewish people, but Gentile people who came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Gentiles becoming Christians by the boatload. So there's this one particular city named Antioch where this happens a lot. And so what you have there is the first multicultural, multi-ethnic church. You have Jewish people and Gentile people all together worshiping Jesus in the same religion, in the same religious gatherings. That is something that had never happened before. Jewish people worshiping God and Gentile people worshiping God, all the same God all together. Never had happened before. And now here they are all together um, in Antioch. So there's one of the leaders of that church, his name's Barnabas. He recruits Saul to help him pastor this church that's filled with um, Jews and Gentiles together. He had known Saul from maybe about 10 years earlier they had met, and he knew that Saul was in Tarsus, and so he went and found him and said, hey, will you come help me pastor this church with all these people that just became Christians, some of which are Jewish and some of which are Gentile, and Saul said, sure. And so he shows up, and that's what they're doing for a while. And then at some point in in that time period, they hear about a fact that there's going to be this famine that's going to affect the people in the Jerusalem area really bad. And so these people who are Christians in Antioch said, we need to send money to the Christians that are in Jerusalem, even though we don't know them, even though they're strangers to us, we now realize they're family. Like if God's their father and God is our father, if we believe in Jesus and they believe in Jesus, then, then these are our brothers and sisters down there. And so they sent them money so that they'd be able to get through the famine, So the delivery men of that money would be Saul, Barnabas, and perhaps a guy named Titus. And they went down and they were actually, um, in the book of Acts you see, they traveled to Jerusalem, like they went from Antioch to Jerusalem, and there were actually several occasions where Saul took a trip to Jerusalem. At um, At some point, while they were there in Jerusalem, on one of these trips, Saul presented the message of Jesus, the message that he had been preaching for about 14 years at this point, to the earliest followers of Jesus, apostles like Peter and John, and uh, Jesus's half brother James. And he presented his gospel to them to make sure that his message of Jesus was the same thing as their message of Jesus, right? That the message of Jesus up in Antioch was the same thing as the message of Jesus down in Jerusalem. So he wanted to check to see if they matched, and they did. And that is what we have learned so far. Not bad, eh? right? I mean, for, for, for six, if you've been here for six weeks, you have learned a lot about the early life of Saul. So what happened next in the story? Well, the way, place we left the story off is Saul and Barnabas are in Jerusalem, right? And they just said, is our gospel the same as yours? And they dropped off the money and all that. And so what's the next thing that happens? Well, as best as I can tell, the next thing that happens is Saul and Barnabas go back home. They travel from Jerusalem back to Antioch because that's their hometown. And by hometown, I don't mean the hometown they grew up in. I mean like Their hometown now, like where they live now as adults. You know, some of you would say Ocala is your home, even though you're like not from Ocala. So they're going back to their hometown, Antioch, to get back to their life before they had visited Jerusalem. So Saul goes back to Antioch. Barnabas goes back to Antioch. Titus, assuming he was with them, goes back. And another guy, and this is something you could find out by reading Acts chapter 12, verse 25. There's another guy that they pick up that's a companion on their journey now, whose name is John Mark. It seems that John Mark is a resident of Jerusalem, and he travels with... Saul and Barnabas back up to Antioch to do, I guess, whatever it is they're going to do up in Antioch. Um, John Mark will matter as this story goes on, so might as well introduce you to him because this is the part of the story where he jumps in. But he's not, um, he's not a big deal yet. This guy, John Mark, becomes very, very famous. Okay, he is the presumed author of the, of the book of Mark. Like Mark doesn't technically say it's author, but Christians have believed for a long time that Mark, under the influence of Peter, wrote Mark. So, super famous. This, John Mark is the Mark of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Super, super famous. But at this point in the story, he hasn't written the book of Mark. So he's just a guy named John Mark, nothing special at this point. Okay, who Nobody knew he was going to be super famous and have hospitals named after him and stuff like that all these years later. At this point, he's just a guy named John Mark, and he's traveling with Saul and Barnabas up to Antioch. So they get back home. Saul and Barnabas is home. And then I don't know how much time passed between all of that that I just said and this next incident that happened. Um, It could have been that this next thing that I teach you happened. It could be that it happened weeks later. It could be that it happened months later. Technically, it could be that it happened years later. Although I don't think it was years later because there's a big issue that's going to come up in today's story that I think is mostly settled by the time you get to Acts chapter 15. So I'm thinking it's, I'm suspecting that what I'm about to read you took place before all this stuff got settled in Acts chapter 15. But I do not know that 100% for sure. So what I'm thinking is this. I'm picturing Saul and Barnabas are there in Jerusalem. Then they, with Titus and John Mark, go back to Antioch. And then time passes, maybe several months later. Peter makes the journey from Jerusalem up to Antioch to see what's going on there. I don't know what the reason is because it doesn't say why. Maybe he just wanted to see the very first like Jewish and Gentile all mixed together worshiping Jesus' church because he'd never seen that before. you know. So maybe he went up to see it with his own eyes. But whatever the reason... Peter is in Antioch in the story that I'm about to read to you, okay? He's left Israel, gone to another country, and is now in the city of Antioch, as I'm about to read this to you. And this story that I will read is an unusual Bible story in that it is one of the few places, perhaps the only place in the whole Bible, where one of the apostles rebukes another one of the apostles to his face in public. So here's the story. If you have your Bible with you, you can go to Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read to you verses 11 through 16. Galatians 2, 11 through 16. This is what it says. And this is written from Paul, Saul's point of view here. Okay. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now who's Cephas. Yeah, Peter. We've talked about this in past weeks. Cephas is Peter. I mean, literally Peter. Like The the word Cephas is the same as the word Peter. It's just two different languages. Cephas is the Aramaic version. Peter is the Greek version. But it's like the same word. Okay, Cephas is Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, so this is how I know this didn't take place when Saul and Barnabas were down there in Jerusalem. This is Peter came up to see them. When he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I'm assuming not as soon as he walked in, okay? Uh, but, but at some point while he was there in Antioch, he said, you're wrong, okay? Wrong about what, okay? He said, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, okay? I think he's saying, like he was, he was in the wrong about something. What was Peter so wrong about? Let's read the story. Verse 12, for he, he being Peter, Cephas, for he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. That is a party I would not want to go to. <laughs> Verse 13. Then the. <laughs> I'm sorry. Verse 13, then the, the rest of, the, I'm not really sorry, that was fun. Okay, verse 13, then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. So that's our story. The story begins this morning with Peter doing the right thing. Okay, Peter accepted the Gentiles. He ate with them. And if you look at verse 12, it says that. It says, for he, can you go give me verse 12, for he regularly ate with the Gentiles. And I think that, first of all, I think that means literally that he ate with them. But I think it means more than just that. It means he hung out with them, right? He befriended them. He regularly ate with the Gentiles. Peter accepted the Gentiles as friends and, and shared meals with them and treated them like they were his equals, He treated them like they were brothers and sisters. And that was a big deal. Because before Jesus came along, Jewish people didn't do that. Before Jesus came along, Jewish people did not say like, oh, well, let's just... No, they believed that their God was the true God, which they were correct about. And so all the other nations are worshiping these false gods. And so they're all sinful, dirty, rotten people. And so we don't want to hang out with any of We don't want any of their sinful, dirty, rottenness to get on us. We're just going to worship the true God, and it stinks that they don't know the truth, and they don't believe in the true God, and they're doing all these awful things, but we're not going to associate with these dirty, rotten sinners who do not follow the true God. That was normal behavior in that culture. And then, when Jesus came, and he saved Jews and Gentiles save them both, and save them both in the same way, like by doing the same thing and treating them both the same, right? That opened the door to Jewish Christians treating Gentile Christians as equals, as family. So Peter accepted the Gentiles. He ate with them and treated them as if they were part of the same family of God that he was. And this is not the first time he did this. It's not like he was in Jerusalem and a whole, his whole life has just been, you know, like he's never ever seen a Gentile and never eaten with one. And then finally he shows up in Antioch and goes, whoa, this is crazy. And then eats with the Gentiles. No, this is, there's at least one other occasion where he had already acted this way. It's earlier in, the, in history and it's chronicled in the book of Acts. I didn't read this to you when we were going through Acts because um, it's not about Saul and we've been ta- not about Paul and we have we've been talking about the life of Paul. But I'm going to go back and just read you a few verses so you get a little bit of the backstory of what had happened with Peter prior to him showing up into Antioch with all these Gentiles that wanted to have dinner with him. Prior to that happening, back in Acts chapter 10, there's some occasion where. Peter evangelizes some Gentiles. The, the main guy's name is Cornelius, and, it's in, and he's got his friends and family that are all there. And God arranges it to happen. God arranges Cornelius to seek out Peter by causing a vision to happen so that he would seek out Peter. And then Peter has this vision that prepares him to accept these Gentiles when he goes to meet them. You can read the whole story if you want by reading Acts 10 and 11. But Peter shows up and starts telling these Gentiles about Jesus, and they come to know Jesus. They believe the gospel, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and they're baptized. And in the midst of that story, as Peter's ministering to these Gentiles, he says these words. I can't read it all to you, but let me just read two verses. Acts 10, verse 34. Peter's talking to these Gentiles and he says, this is verse 34, then Peter began to speak. Now I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism. Now I get it. Now Jesus had already said, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But for some reason, he didn't, I don't think he really got it at that point. And at this point, these, these Gentiles are coming to know Jesus, and God is telling them to do it and to accept them. And he goes, now I really get it. I really get that God doesn't show favoritism, obviously referring to favoritism of Jew over Gentile. He says, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable to him. Not just in Israel. It's not just that God accepts these people in Israel. But in every nation, the person who fears him. This is really common language in the Bible. Like the idea of fearing God doesn't mean to be scared by or horrified by him. But like those who worship him, those who seek out, seek after him. This could be true of people in any nation. Because God doesn't show favoritism. And so he realizes that. And he talks to these people and he tells them about Jesus and they receive the Holy Spirit and he knows that they have and he baptizes them and he hangs out with them for several days. And then after he's been hanging out with these Gentiles for several days, he goes back home and gets harassed by some of his friends. Or I don't know if they were friends, people. This is what it says, Acts chapter 11, verse two. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, those who stressed circumcision argued with him saying, you visited uncircumcised men and ate with them. Right? So Peter went, and I think this is basically saying back home, right? after having hung out with these people, these Gentiles, who he said, now I know God doesn't show favoritism. And he goes back home, and apparently the people heard about it. And it says, those who stressed circumcision. This is probably a group of people that believe you have to be circumcised to be saved, because it's part of the Mosaic law. That basically, a Gentile has to become a Jewish person, adhering to the Old Testament laws, and then they can believe in Jesus and be saved. And so they said, why in the world did you visit with and eat with i mean that's you're that's acting like like they're acceptable like they're equal to you like you 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 befriended gentiles and what's interesting is on this particular occasion peter did not like cave in to what they were saying he did not say like oh i'm sorry that offends you i'll try not to do it anymore no he argued back He said, No, let me tell you the whole story. They had a vision, and I had a vision, and Jesus taught me that I needed to do this, and I explained the gospel to them, and they had the Holy Spirit. He explains the whole story, and then he says this, verse 17 of that chapter. Therefore, if God gave them, them being the Gentiles, the same gift that He also gave to us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's referring to the Holy Spirit, how could I possibly hinder God? How could I I possibly go, you're not acceptable, when when God made it really clear that that he accepted them? They are saved. They, They are one of us. How could I act like they're not part of us when they are? So that's what happened. However, some time went by. I don't know how much time, but sometime later, a very similar situation presented itself to him, this time in a different city. And the very similar situation happened, and this time, Peter caved to the peer pressure. So look at Galatians chapter two verse 12, one more time. This is from Saul's point of view, right? Saul Paul, he says, "For he regularly ate with the Gentiles." Yeah, that's what he did. We know he's that kind of guy. Until what? Before certain men came from James. However, when they came he withdrew and separated himself like from the Gentiles because he feared those from the circumcision party. There were men that came from James, and I don't think we need to think bad of James because of this because I don't know why James sent them. All we know is what they did after they, after they were no longer in view of James. And they showed up, and they, I don't know what they did. I don't know if they gave dirty looks, if they did big, long speeches, but somehow they said something, and Peter Withdrew and separated himself. When these people showed up, he started saying, "Oh well, you don't think I should hang out with the Gentiles? I guess I won't anymore." And he separated himself from them. He st- these people that he had befriended, he just cut them off. They're, "Hey, you want to hang out on Saturday night? Nope, I'm busy. Why about Sunday night? Busy. You want to hang out Monday? Still busy. Really, when are you not going to be busy? Never. I'm busy forever. <laughs> oh, so like, you're not going to be our friend anymore." Right, we're done. And and the reason I wanted to read you that stuff from Acts chapter 10 and 11 is I want you to realize Peter did this even though he knew better. Peter withdrew and separated from the Gentiles, and he's the guy who said God doesn't show favoritism. And then he showed favoritism, the very thing he knows God doesn't do. He knew that Christians, both Jew and Gentile, are saved by faith in Jesus Christ and not by adherence to the Old Testament laws. He knew that. But he acted like that wasn't true. And he started saying, No, we're not, we're not, I'm not treating you like that anymore. We're done. Why did he do that? Why did he treat them that way? The passage tells us why. It says he withdrew and separated himself because, here's why, he feared those from the circumcision party. He's afraid. And the word feared, I think this is helpful to know, in the New Testament, the word feared is used a lot of times, and it doesn't always mean what we think in English. It doesn't always mean like to be horrified by or to be scared of. Sometimes it means something like, he, like respected, okay? So when it says he feared, it's not necessarily that he was worried that like they had Uzis in their robes and they were going to like do something to him, but more like, like he cared what they thought about him, you know, he wanted to please them. And so he didn't want them to like look down on him, so it's like, "Oh no, no, I don't think they're cool either." Okay, so then what happened? So he's worried about what these people think of him, so he withdraws from them. Well, it looks to me, even though Antioch's not where he's from, he is a pretty influential person. Like Peter's a significant character in early Christianity. His like watching what he did and the choices that he made, he must have been a very influential person because look at the next verse, verse 13. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy. I'm assuming this means the rest of the Jews there in Antioch. That when Peter stopped hanging out with the Gentiles, the rest of them all went, well, if you're not good enough for Peter, I guess you're not good enough for us either. And they all withdrew. But that's crazy to think about because from what we know of this church, these Jews and Gentiles had been mixing it together all year long they'd all accepted each other and they were taking Lord's Supper together and they were having church services together and they were eating together and they were caring for one another and praying for one another. Some of these Jewish people probably had led some of these Gentile people to the Lord. And then Peter said, "Uh -uh," and they all just at some point jumped with him on team shun the Gentiles. So they all got busy. They all ditched their friends, and I'm guessing at some point there were probably separate, like church meetings, where these people over here are all Jewish, and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper all together in this Jewish guy's house with all of our Jewish friends present, and you Gentiles can do your Lord's Supper thing over in Mr. Gentile's house with all your Gentile friends present. But you're like a, you're separate from us. And notice the word that's used here. It says the rest of the Jews joined his. What's the word? Hypocrisy. Who's hypocrisy? Peter's. So they joined Peter's hypocrisy. Well, what's, what's that mean, hypocrisy? Well, I looked it up. The Greek word that's translated into our English word hypocrisy is a word that can mean play-acting. Okay, So, like, you know, when people are in a play and they're acting like they're a different character than they are. They're saying things, but not as themselves. right? They're saying things as if they're somebody else. Um, so it's a word that means saying something different than what's going on on the inside. Clearly, in this case, the word is not being used in a, in a cool way, like theater. Right? It is being used in a negative way. That like these people are on the outside acting in a way that doesn't match what's going on on the inside. There's a deceptive way that they're acting. They're treating this situation in a certain way, even though it doesn't even match what they say they believe. And I think there's a hint here, this word plus the rest of the paragraph, that probably what is true is that Peter and these Jewish people who joined him, they probably didn't change their doctrine. They probably just changed their behavior. It's it's probably not true that Peter one day got up and said, you know what I think? I think Gentiles can't come to know Jesus. I think he didn't die on the cross for them. I think they can't be saved. Unless they follow all the Mosaic laws and become a Jewish person first, I think there's no hope for them. I think it's very doubtful that Peter ever taught anything like that. And these Jewish people probably didn't teach that either. But they acted like that was true. They didn't say Jesus can't save Gentiles and they're not part of our family. But they acted like they were other And that's, that's my guess here, especially because if he really believed this stuff, it wouldn't be hypocrisy, right? If Peter really believed Gentile people can't be saved, he'd be wrong, but it wouldn't be hypocritical, right? He'd just be living the life the way he lives. But no, he's hypocritical because he's someone that says, you believe in Jesus to be saved. Well, we believe in Jesus. Eh, not enough, right? I'm not hanging out with you. And then look how bad it got. How bad did this situation get? Look at this. The rest of the Jews joined his his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. What? Barnabas? Mr. I'll accept anybody, Barnabas? I mean, do you know much about Barnabas? Because let me just tell you the little bit we know about this guy. He seems to be like Mr. Encourager and accepting of everybody in the Bible. We already know in this series that he was the only guy that would accept Saul when Saul first became a Christian. Remember that part of the story where Saul became a Christian? And they're all like, no, you're the bad guy that was killing us, right? And everyone's like, we're not going to trust him. And Barnabas was the only one that was like, no, no, let's believe him. Let's trust him. Right? He was the only guy. And then later on, we haven't got to this part of the story yet, but there's coming a point where um, Paul does not accept John Mark and Barnabas is the one that jumps in there and goes, no, no, who cares what he did? Let's accept him anyway. Accepting Barnabas? Joined team shun? Isn't that crazy? Even Barnabas, this is the guy who the people in Jerusalem sent him to Antioch when they heard that Jews and Gentiles were, that the Gentiles were becoming Christians. And they sent Barnabas to that city. And so Barnabas showed up and saw Gentiles believing in Jesus. And he didn't go, what are we going to do about this? He showed up and went, this is awesome. And he started pastoring these Jews and Gentiles all together. This is the same Barnabas that traveled back to Jerusalem to make sure that the gospel in Antioch was the same as the gospel in Jerusalem. This is the same Barnabas that had Titus with him. And Titus was a Christian and uncircumcised, and it was deemed, that's fine. This is the same Barnabas that that John and Peter looked at and said to him and Saul, we'll be the apostles to the Jews. You go be the apostles to the Gentiles. You go tell the Gentiles to become believers of Jesus Christ. And Barnabas said, we'll do. And then went to Antioch. And then this whole thing happened with Peter. And Barnabas joined Team Shun of all people. There must have been some serious peer pressure going down. So what happens next? Next verse, verse 14. But when I saw, remember the I is Saul, Paul. When I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? And I know that's kind of a hard sentence because you got the word like Jew, Gentile, Jew, Gentile, Jew. That's a lot of nouns. But I I think the gist of what he's saying there is maybe something like this. Peter, of all people, like, you're not just a regular Jewish person who doesn't accept Gentiles. You're the one who does. You're, 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 you're one who knows Jesus. And your life has changed because of Jesus. And you don't even act like you did back when you were born a Jew. You act more like a Gentile now. And I don't know specifically what he means, but it, I mean, it could be because of the, the foods that Peter started to eat once he realized what Jesus had accomplished. Maybe Peter had stopped sacrificing animals to God because there was no reason to now that Jesus has died on the cross. I don't know exactly what he did, but there comes a point where Paul goes, you live more like a Gentile now, now that Jesus has come. So how could you possibly look at these people and say that they need to become more Jewish? Who do you think you are? Verse 15, we who are Jews by birth, he's talking about himself and Peter, right? And not Gentile sinners, meaning the way Gentiles are before they come to know Jesus when they're just out there and they don't know the true God. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. There's a way to be justified by faith and not by the works of the law. Now, what does the word justified mean? The word justified means to be declared righteous, like particularly to be declared righteous by God in this context. Right, it means to be considered acceptable to God. That when God would look at a person and say, "You are righteous. You are good enough. You are holy." Even if you're a sinner, He said, "No, you are acceptable to Me. You can come into My kingdom. I declare you to be righteous." Nobody is declared to be righteous in God's sight by works of the law, by following all the stuff that's in the Old Testament. No, by faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying, "Peter, you and I are the people who know that, and we have believed in Christ Jesus." There's a reason we believe in Jesus. Why do we believe in Jesus? So that we might be declared righteous in God's sight, accepted by God, by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, which we have not done perfectly. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. This whole idea that if somebody just follows the Old Testament rules good enough, they'll be justified, you remember, that's not going to happen to anybody. There's no person that's going to show up on Judgment Day and go, All right, God, this is what I have to present to you. All the rules, did them all. Did them all perfectly. And God's going to look at that person and go, well, I'll be. You did. You did it all perfectly. Come on into my kingdom. That's never going to happen to anybody. So how are we saved then? We're not saved by making sure we do all the works of the law. Nobody does that. There had to be someone who fulfilled all of the law on our behalf. And who gives us righteousness as a gift. And so we place our faith in Jesus Christ and he saves us. That's the gospel. And that's why I think Paul said in verse 14, look at what he says. He says, but when I saw, and this is interesting, he doesn't just say, when I saw they were wrong. right? He's more specific than that. It's not just when I saw they were wrong. When I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, when I noticed that they were acting like the message of Jesus wasn't true. When I showed up and I saw these people going, I can't spend any time with you, you're not really one of us. Oh, we're going to have our own special meeting over here where we are, do our thing, and you Gentiles can do your separate thing. When I walked in and saw that, I said to them, you're not acting like the message of Jesus is even true. And so that's the story, that's what happened. Um, Now this particular version of the story, which is, Paul's version of it in Galatians, it does not say what Peter's reaction was. Saul just says what he said, okay, and then moves on to the next topic. So technically, we don't know exactly what Peter's reaction was, but considering the rest of the New Testament and what we know of that happened after this, I would guess that Peter accepted Saul's rebuke and went back to his old ways of treating Gentiles as brothers and sisters who were saved by Jesus Christ. So that's this morning's story. What can we learn from this? Like, that's kind of a lot of history. That's a lot of Christian history right there. But how, what can we do with this? What can we learn from this story for our own lives? And so I have for you eight application points this morning. Okay? You ready? Okay, good. We got like four people ready little bit of nervous laughter, like, is it really eight application points? For real, it's eight. Um, and, and, and it doesn't mean that you're going to be here for another hour. I think I'll spend maybe an average of one minute on each one, okay? I'm just going to quickly go through eight ways this story applies to us. Number one, and th- they're going to come up on the screen. Number one, there are times when it's appropriate to rebuke someone, even publicly. There are times when it's appropriate to rebuke someone, even publicly. The reason I add the words even publicly there is because in this story, it doesn't just say that Peter opposed... Um, Cephas. It specifically says, I told Cephas in front of everyone. So apparently there's a time not only to rebuke someone, but to rebuke someone in front of everybody else. Now I'm not saying that's the normal way. I'm not saying that should be step one. I'm just saying there are occasions where it's appropriate. Um, Not always. Jesus did a teaching in Matthew chapter 18, where he talked about that when you're trying to deal with somebody else's sin, typically the number one, step number one, is to go talk to the person privately. One-on-one just between the two of you is the normal step one in dealing with this stuff. But I don't think this was a normal situation. This situation with Peter had already become public. right? To say, well, let's just handle this between the two of us. It's not about the two of us anymore. There's like Gentile meetings and Jewish meetings. There's like half the church won't speak to the other half of the church. This sin is not one person's private sin anymore. It has affected the whole church. So we have to address it in front of everybody and get everyone back on track. All right, number two, second application point. Christian leaders can sin and be restored. Christian leaders can sin and be restored. Now, this might be obvious to many of you because Christianity is about redemption, okay? But Twitter doesn't know that, okay? Because whenever I've gone on Twitter, and I really need to stop because I feel like it's doing almost nothing good for me, but it seems like there are a lot of Christians on Twitter who seem to believe that when a person in ministry sins in any sort of substantial way, that they are disqualified from ministry forever, or at least for their lifetime. I don't know what they believe about heaven, but at least for their, their remainder of this time on this earth. Regardless of severity of the sin, regardless of whether or not the person is repentant, and looking at this passage and thinking about what we understand about it and what we know that Peter did after this, I think it's safe to assume Peter deviated from the gospel, was rebuked, and went back to serving the Lord. Number three, third application point. It is possible to drift from living out the gospel. Obviously, because one of the characters in the story does it. In fact, several of the characters, almost almost every Jewish character in the story does it, except for Saul. It is possible to drift from living out the gospel. Isn't that kind of encouraging to know? Like if you think to yourself, like, well, no, once I become a Christian, I will do everything right. And then you drift. Isn't the first thought you're going to be is like, well, maybe I'm not really a Christian because, look, I've done something wrong after having become a Christian. No, nope, that happens. That happens. You, you become a Christian, then you do things wrong afterwards. And so I feel like there's a sense in which this passage is sort of encouraging, isn't it? Like, Peter blew it. How fantastic is that? The apostle Peter messed up horribly. So... When you mess up horribly, and you will, you can know that you're in good company and that you can repent and you can remember that God forgives and restores. Number four, confrontation is necessary within the church even though we are saved by grace through faith. So confrontation is necessary in the church, that makes sense, but I'm adding this, even though we are saved by grace through faith, because I can imagine there could be Christians, maybe you've met some, that they would say, okay, that person over there is like stuck in this sin and it's awful and everybody like, you know, thinks it's awful and talks about them behind their back and ooh, it's terrible. And then somebody comes up with the idea, maybe somebody should say something. And it's like, I'm not gonna say anything. And it's like, well, why aren't you gonna say anything? And sometimes I can imagine someone might go this, well, does it really matter that they're sinning? After all, we're saved by grace, right? Like it's not like they're gonna go to hell, right? I mean, like they're not saved by how good they are. Why do I need to say anything to correct them? Can you imagine that? But then look at this passage. This passage is super interesting because it combines two things. We have a guy who is like practically screaming, you are saved by faith and not by works, and that guy is confronting someone and telling them to quit doing it. So it can't be that one of these cancels out the other. You cannot use the whole God forgives and salvation is by grace as a reason not to confront anybody on anything. All right, number five, fifth application point. We should live according to our beliefs. We should live according to our beliefs. Or maybe a simpler way to say this is we shouldn't be hypocrites, right? Hypocrisy is bad. We should not be hypocrites. Hypocrisy is when your actions don't match your stated beliefs. It is not enough for us to, to have the right doctrine. It's not en- it is not enough for us to say true things about Jesus in the Bible. We must live as if the truth is true. Number six. Sixth application point. The people around us affect us. Oh, that is true, isn't it? That is so true. In fact, that is so, so true that probably everybody in this room already knew that one before you walked in today. You know that people around you affect you. But I bring it up in the context of the story just to remind you the importance of remembering that the people around us affect us. That Peter was living his life in a particular way until the men from James showed up. And then once the men from James showed up, he went, oh, and he changed how he was acting because he cared what they thought about him. And then it didn't stop there. Peter affected the people around him so that all the Jewish people followed his lead all the way to the point that even Barnabas was affected by the people around him. We must be so careful who we allow to influence us. Number seven, we should fear God, not man. We should fear God, not man. I use the word fear here in this one because it's in our texts. Um, Peter used the word when he was talking about the Gentiles um, in Acts chapter 10, right? He said, I realize, um, I understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him, right? Peter used that word, the one who fears God. And that matches with so many places in the Bible where fears God means to submit to him, to revere him, to worship him. We are supposed to fear God in that sense, right? And and Peter's saying that. And then in Galatians, the word fear is used again. In Galatians, Saul says, he withdrew, that's Peter, and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. So I think in this case, probably in both cases, the word fear is sort of connected to this idea, who are you going to respect like, when, who you fear is, who are you going to try to please? Who, who are you going to care what they think? Who are you going to submit to? Peter should have submitted to God. Peter should have been, like, caring what God thought. God shows no favoritism, neither should I. But the men of James disagree. Who cares? God said something, the men of James said something. Like, who am I going to live my life to please? Who am I going to respect? Who am I going to care what they think? Peter should have feared God more than these men And the same goes for us. And then, number eight, we must believe that we are declared righteous by faith in Jesus, not by following the Old Testament law. We must believe that we are declared righteous by faith in Jesus. And that's the big point here. Like, I think that's like the really huge point. That's the point. That Paul, Saul, is trying to make here in Galatians. Like this story is like a paragraph and a half that I read to you, but it's part of a larger letter that he wrote to these Galatians. And that's like the big point of the whole letter. The reason he tells this story among a bunch of other words is because he's trying to get them to realize we are declared righteous by faith in Jesus, not by our following of all of the rules in the Old Testament. That's the main point here. And in fact, he. he This is the part I just read to you, and then he continues to talk about it. Verse 17, verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, verse 21, and then finally the topic sort of changes at verse 21. So let me just go to the end and read you the last sentence of this section. Paul says this, verse 21 of Galatians chapter 2. He says, I do not set aside the, what? The grace. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. I do not set aside the, the, the gift, the I didn't earn it, right? The grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, what did Jesus even die for? If you can behave your way into God's kingdom, there's no reason for Jesus to die on the cross. Just everybody needs to try to behave. And the people who behave well get in the kingdom. And the people who don't behave well, they don't get, they don't get in the kingdom. And that's the system, right? No reason for Jesus to die if that's how it works. That's not how it works. Nobody can behave their way into the kingdom. If that were the system, nobody would make it in. Jesus didn't die for nothing. Jesus died because people who could not obtain righteousness through the law could obtain righteousness by Jesus obeying the law and then giving to us as a gift his righteousness and his acceptance. That's the gospel, and that's why we worship him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this passage and I, I I guess say the same thing I said really in the first service. I realize there are a bunch of people here with all different, they're at all different points in their life. And so there may be some people here that hear this and they need to like stop caring about what other people think of them. And other people here that need to stop being hypocrites. And maybe there are other people who need to believe that, that their, their righteousness comes from you and, and through faith and not through works of the law. And maybe there are other people that need to, Go talk to somebody about their sin and quit going like, well, it doesn't really matter, it doesn't matter, sin doesn't matter. And maybe there's somebody here that got confronted by someone righteously and they they took offense and they got all upset and they they need to stop taking offense over that and be thankful that somebody in their life cared enough to say something. We're all at different spots. And so I just ask God that you would apply this to our life in the way that we need it. You are incredible. You are all-knowing. You can think about a trillion things at the same time, and you can do a trillion things at the same time. And so I am confident that you can, with all of the lives in this room, take your word by the power of your spirit and help us as individuals to figure out what the next step is for us, and you can push us the next step on the path. And I just ask that you would. We thank you for your grace. We worship you for doing what we could never do so that you could reward us with a a reward we would never deserve. So we thank you for your love. Even thinking of that song, comes with no conditions, you give us your whole heart. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.